Amen. Someone said, that's the good news. <laughs> and that is the good news. It's the foundation for what we're going to be talking today for all who believe. Because today we come kind of to the bad news. Bad news, in a lot of ways, though, is really good news. If you turn together to the book of Romans, uh, Romans chapter 2. As most of you know, our annual meeting will be after this service and before the third service, so we've had to shorten all three services to make room for it, which includes uh, shortening the sermons in all three services, which might, might not be all that a bad thing, if you think about it, especially looking at our subject for today, uh, the wrath of God, which, to be honest, in some ways anyway, is not one of my favorites. Though once you get into it, it is fascinating. Though I do feel kind of like the chicken that decided to go out and lay an egg in the freeway. Ever heard of that chicken? The rooster said, well, if you insist, go ahead, but here's some advice. You better lay it on the line and do it in a hurry. (laughs) So I'm going to do this in a hurry, providentially. The uh, annual meeting, uh, thanks to the annual meeting, I've got, I've got a book on my shelves called Celebrating the Wrath of God. And of course, at first you think, celebrating the wrath of God, you've got to be kidding. Uh, this is one of the most politically correct, incorrect uh, doctrines of our day. Uh, uh, the, the book is published by the highly respected evangelical publishing house, Waterbrook Press, which publishes uh, a number of my mother's books, and it's written by the great Irish pastor and preacher, Jim McGuigan. I'd recommend his writings if you've not uh, read them. But then you read the subtitle and you think, well, maybe there is something to it. The subtitle, you can't read it from the screens, but it says this. Celebrating the wrath of God, reflections on the agony and the ecstasy of his relentless love. Reflections on the agony and the ecstasy of his relentless love. Did you know that fundamentally, and many of you I'm sure do, God's wrath is all about his relentless love? It's about his love of holiness, fundamentally, which we won't get into today. But equally, it's all about his love of unholy men and women. McGuigan doesn't deal with our passage in Romans for today, but the title of this message comes from that book because it's so thoroughly biblical. It's all through Scripture, all through the Bible, in different ways, climaxing in the choirs of the book of Revelation, we see them celebrating the wrath of God in no uncertain terms. Today and next week, we'll look at why we can do this. These days, uh, we'd rather make fun of it, and sometimes what people say is funny. You've probably forgotten by now what happened to Rudolph Giuliani's microphone during a debate years ago when he was running for president. Uh, He was one of the Republican presidential candidates, and he was defending himself against charges from a Catholic bishop that his uh, abortion views were not consistent with the Christian faith. And uh, no sooner had he started his defense, uh, his microphone began breaking up, and there was all this feedback, and you know how loud it can get. It was kind of alarming. And it went on and on. And when it stopped, finally, the moderator of the discussion, Wolf Blitzer of CNN, he quipped this. Uh, he joked that the, pro- that the problem with his mic, Giuliani's mic, might have been caused by lightning from above because of his view on abortion. And when he said that, the other candidates playfully backed away from their microphones. Because <laughs> you never know. And Giuliani did too. And then Giuliani said this. Look, for someone who went to Catholic schools all his life, this is a very frightening thing that's happening right now. 
Funny or frightening? Well, maybe it was God sending a signal. Who knows? Last year in Romans 1, 18 to 2, 3, we saw what really is the wrath of God's withdrawal, where he tries to bring men to their senses by giving them over, as Paul said several times, by giving them over to the consequences of their choices. And we saw that uh, he does this out of love for their own good, to bring them to their senses so they'll turn to him and not go to hell on earth and then hell in eternity. The wrath of God's withdrawal. And then, starting in Romans 2, 4, we saw the offensive uh, wrath of God. We saw that he's got an incredibly long fuse through the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, as he says uh, there in verse 4. And when he finally, when Paul finally goes in, God, well, when God finally goes into the offensive mode, it only goes to show, we saw, how merciful he's been. How patient, how, in spite of how sinful we've been, um, he's so unbelievably, so kindly forbearing. How long he put it off. This week we'll see how the offensive wrath of God is so, Roman numeral two, eloquently focused. Not just kindly forbearing, but eloquently focused. Because when it finally comes, it fingers uh, some current form of depravity. Usually it cuts to the heart of our unique brand of sin with like this clean surgical incision and like a layer shines on it, having laid it bare for all to see. And say, he says, do you really want this? How so? Well, again, starting in verse 4, and this was last year of chapter 2, Paul says, or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads to repentance? He's talking to the Pharisees of his day who crucified Christ, and nothing had happened yet. And he's saying, God is not, he's, he's being so kindly forbearing to you. That was last time. So kindly forbearing before he intervenes. And what if it doesn't lead to repentance? Well, that's verse 5. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. There's a lot packed in this verse, but the bottom line is this. The day of wrath is not just like, you know, this violent explosion. No, it's an eloquent revelation that sends a signal. And so the publishers of this book got the picture, the cover picture, right with a lighthouse that shines in the darkness. It's fundamental to God's wrath. The Greek word that Paul uses here in verse 5 for revelation is apocalypsis, which of course should sound familiar, from which we get the word apocalypse. Of course, apocalypse is a cataclysmic event. But what apocalypsis literally means in the Greek is revelation as in communication. Through some kind of cataclysm of some important information. That's the biblical definition of apocalypse. The communication through some kind of cataclysm of some important information. And so in a truly uh, apocalyptic event, the offensive wrath of God is always, we're going to see, an apocalyptic revelation that sends a clear message. 
It's more focused, you might say, than a smart bomb because it targets the heart of our depravity in one way or another and lays it bare for all to see. The offensive wrath of God reveals the unique fist that a generation is raising to high heaven and it often brings it down. It's a calling card, a last resort intervention, this final ultimatum after all else has failed through the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience. One that says, you need to call on me or I'll be calling on you again. And then he ups the ante. It's happened over and over again down through the centuries. Which is why Paul tees all of this up as we saw last year, way back in Romans 1.18 by saying the, the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Literally that means is being revealed. The wrath of God's withdrawal, the wrath of his attack. Is being revealed. It's in the present tense in the Greek. It's called the present active participle, which means it is continually being revealed as God continually involves himself with the affairs of men for their good. Or this would have long since been hell on earth. Because it cycles through history on a regular basis. How so? Well, let's unpack this word in Romans 5, this tip of the iceberg word, one that's at the heart of uh, these first two chapters, and it's all through Scripture, and that is apocalypse, the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. And we're not going to start today. We'll start at a safe distance. Let's look at it first, point A in your notes, uh, biblically. You see it all through the Bible. Last year, we talked about the destruction of Jerusalem uh, in 70 AD, which Paul may have had in mind here because he's telling the Pharisees, again, here in Romans, that they're storing up wrath for themselves. Before the destruction of Jerusalem, God had given them plenty of warnings, starting uh, uh, probably five years before Paul wrote this, uh, starting with Christ. And now Paul says the same thing. Uh, Watch out, the apocalypse is coming, a revelation, the righteous judgment of God. Just like the prophets warned them over and over again all through the Old Testament. We saw, how, again, how, in how his kindness and forbearance and patience, God waited 40 years to judge the Jews for crucifying his son. A whole generation to see if things would change. And then he was involved with them through Christians and others all the way along those 40 years. And we saw how the scripture is full of examples of this, how he has such a long fuse because he's slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness as he revealed himself to Moses. He's so kindly forbearing. Again, that was Roman numeral one. But his wrath is also eloquently focused. One of the distinguishing features of the apocalypse that, that uh, he predicted, that Paul predicted, the judgment of Jerusalem, was the message that it sent. And just what message was that? Well, it's what Christ said when he prophesied it 40 years before it happened or so. When he said, not one stone shall be left upon another which shall not be torn down. Remember that prophecy? Matthew 24, 2, he was talking about the temple here because the temple itself had become, you know, this den of thieves. As he said, a whitewashed tomb. It was a haven of hypocrites as Paul goes on to say in the rest of Romans 2 because God's giving them another chance. And here in Romans 2, Paul too predicts the apocalypse. 
if something doesn't change. And 35 years later, in 70 AD, not one stone was left upon another. And for those who had eyes to see, the focus of God's fury and the effect of God's fury uh, itself told a story, had a message. It cut to the heart of their depravity. It laid it bare, the emptiness, the flatness of it all for all to see. The empty religion that the temple had come to symbolize. And so he wiped it off the earth and it looked like a whitewashed tomb. Read the historical accounts, Josephus, for instance, and you'll see that indeed, not one stone was left upon another. The Romans went to pains to just clear it off. And believers marveled at the fulfillment of Christ's prediction, and it was a wake-up call for those who didn't believe because it was so eloquently focused. In Ezekiel 23, we're told that Israel played the harlot, Uh, with the Babylonians and the Assyrians, with uh, uh, political and religious ties to these countries that God had uh, expressly uh, forbidden. So how did he finger that in his judgment? Well, he used them to discipline Israel. Therefore, thus says the Lord, one of many examples, Ezekiel 23, 22, Behold, I will arouse your lovers against you, and I will bring them against you from every side, the Babylonians and all the Assyrians with them. These things will be done to you because you have played the harlot with these nations. You have defiled yourself with their idols. What he's talking about here is, make, is making a fine point that's not just, uh, uh, when he finally intervenes, that's, that, that's not just randomly, you know, fierce, but eloquently focused to turn against them the ones that they had turned to he brought their sin back on their own heads it's called lex talionis the law of retribution which is so imminently fair the very ones that they had ties to broke the ties it was a revelation of their foolishness in doing it and god's goodness in telling them not to and to his justice in the way he punished them for it they brought it on themselves The way he did it was a clear message, and it wasn't just happenstance. It was of God. Our idols will destroy us, and uh, uh, it happens to this day. And the Scripture trains our eyes to see these kinds of things. It's all through the Scripture, but we ignore it today. The Scripture trains our eyes to see these things and and to respond in the right way when it happens in our day. Each of the plagues that Moses brought on Egypt was eloquently focused. Every one of them, each in its own way, fingered their unique brand of idolatry, fingered their uh, depravity. The judgments in the book of Revelation do the same. Of course, there's not time to unpack any of this. The seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, the vile judgments are a revelation of the world's unique brand of uh, depravity. It's a fascinating study, and it's there so we would do that. Because the wrath of God's attack is always judicious and, and, and it's never capricious. It's an eloquently focused apocalypse. The righteous judgment of God is always a revelation. To the point of being an object lesson, an education, a revelation that sends a clear message in a last-ditch effort to bring men to their senses. It's all over the place in Scripture. So much so that back then, the burden of proof would have been on those who would say that something was not his judgment. 
These days, the burden of proof is on those who would dare to say that something, anything, is his judgment. We've swung to an opposite extreme. Of course, not everything is, and it's not always easy to tell, but haven't we gone to the other extreme, not daring to say that anything is the judgment of God? That is not biblical. According to the scriptures, more often than not, these things are the hand of God. What things? What things should we look at for messages from God? Well, let me read just a few typical passages. Uh, Amos 3.6. If a calamity occurs in a city, has not the Lord done it? Isaiah 45.5. I am the Lord and there is no other. Beside me there is no other God. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. We saw this last year as we unpacked Psalm 104 says he looks at the earth and it trembles. That's an earthquake. That's verse 32. He touches the mountains and they smoke. We saw that's a volcano. He makes the winds his messengers, revelatory messengers, apocalyptic winds. Apocalyptic messengers, maybe like the Santa Ana winds in Southern California. Messengers that say something. He makes flaming fire his ministers. That is, wildfires can minister his justice. And they're a lightning revelation. Remember how we used to call these things acts of God? You don't dare do that anymore. And it's not just all over the place biblically. But point B in your notes, in history... Because he's actively engaged in the affairs of men, nations and individuals, through his relentless love. What does it look like outside of Scripture? Well, it was in Messina, Italy, in the early morning of December 28, 1908, that an earthquake struck the city. The city was known for two things worldwide, depravity and blasphemy. Just a few hours before the earthquake, in fact, the city council passed a series of violent resolutions against the Christian religion. And in fact, just three days before the earthquake, and all this is documented, on Christmas Day, none other, of 1908, in their journal El Telefono published a pornographic parody of the Christmas story. One that ended up at the end daring God Almighty to make himself known by sending an earthquake. Three days later it came. Talk about sending a signal based on what they had all read in the newspaper. It was eloquently focused and the whole world took notice. There are enough examples of this to fill books, but we have time for just one more, a bit closer to home, but still at a safe distance in past history. It was something that happened to America, something that was eloquently focused. At least it was for Abraham Lincoln. And just what was that? Well, Lincoln called the Civil War God's judgment on this nation, as some of you know. Back then, it was so obvious that it wasn't just Lincoln who saw it this way. His Secretary of State, William Seward, did too, as did the whole Senate. My, how things have changed. All of whom signed his proclamation to this effect. Here's what he said. It's from the proclamation appointing a national day of fast a National Fast Day on March 30, 1863. Inasmuch 
as we know that by God's divine law, nations like individuals are subjected to punishment and chastisements in this world. May we not justly fear that the awful calamity of civil war which now desolates the land may be but a punishment inflicted upon us for our presumptuous sins to the needful end of our national reformation as a whole people. We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown, but we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand, his kindly forbearance. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom or virtue of our own intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God that made us. It behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power, to confess our national sins, and to pray for clemency and forgiveness. And that's what the nation did. You know, look, looking at what's going on around us today, a good case can be made for those that have eyes to see that this is what we need to do today. To humble ourselves before the offended power, to confess our national sins, not just point the finger at them, but us, and to pray for clemency and forgiveness. Mightn't it be safer to assume that things like these are his judgments and to take heed than to ignore them? Might it more behoove us to be students of the wrath of God in the scriptures than to ignore these signs of his relentless love? Mightn't it be better today, indeed, again, to pray for clemency and forgiveness? Which, if you think about it, is exactly what we did last year as a congregation for 40 days. And it's a very unusual thing. Seeking God's guidance in a posture of repentance, and it's a very fitting thing. Looking around us today, which is precisely the purpose of his judgments that we go to our knees to do that. And in God's providence, we're continuing this in these first chapter of Romans that also brings us to our knees because it's so easy to think we've done that, we can move on from it. No, it's fundamental to the Christian walk. Looking around us these days, it's good that we've done this. If you look at his judgments, point C in your notes, uh, today, which we'll have to save for next Sunday. I've laid the egg and I'm getting off the highway. (laughs) And uh, we will also move to point Roman numeral three in your notes of how God is not just kindly forbearing, verse four, so eloquently focused in his wrath, verse five, but also equally under it, also imminently fair. That's verses six to 16. The bottom line of it all is this. This side of the lake of fire, all his judgments have a redemptive purpose for those who have eyes to see. That is, 
in so many ways, including this way, in wrath he remembers mercy. Habakkuk 3.2. And so as James said, in more ways than we will ever know, climaxing at the cross, mercy triumphs over judgment. And don't let anyone tell you otherwise. It triumphed in this way most powerfully at the cross where we celebrate his wrath that made Christ our, our great redeemer who now leads us and guides us in his good ways.